You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. Good evening and, and welcome, a very warm welcome to ODI. Uh, welcome to those who are watching the live stream and we know that there are many people online all around the world, which is fantastic. Uh, I'm James Cameron, I'm the uh, chair of ODI, chair of the board here. I'm 30 years into the climate change issue. Uh, had a go at many angles, international lawyer by training, academic, practiced law, built organizations, entrepreneurial organizations, done international negotiations. And I'm really interested in the space between disciplines, between law and policy, finance and technology, but also in the themes that I hope will emerge in our conversation uh, with two friends of mine tonight. I'm interested in the great theme of English novel Howard's End by Ian Forster, Only Connect. I'm interested in how the progression, rhetorical progression, in, 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 in Greek philosophy between thesis, antithesis, and synthesis might actually produce some answers uh, for us as we grapple with the problem of climate change. And I have faith in reason. And one of the things that's particularly pleasurable about this organization is it's a place where evidence is gathered and tested and analytics are are pressed up against real-world problems of real severity, climate change perhaps being the dominant one of our times, but where the conflict between environment and development has to be solved in the context of everyday pressures to survive for the poorest people on the planet. And we're going to explore all that because I'm absolutely delighted to have Kate and Michael, who's who, who I know and whose work I know and I much admire, who come here by way of a, a disagreement over the Twitter sphere. Um, a lively conversation, in my notes tell me, uh, that has been captured and an offer has been made to two of you to sort it out live between, uh, in front of us all. And it's, it, it, apparently Kate said she'd send Michael a copy of her book if he agreed to join her in a public debate. So here we are. Um, and ODI, it's, as an institution, has been grappling with these concerns for a long time. Um, Sheila's work and Dirk's work here, grappling with difficult subjects like fossil fuel subsidies and the economics of a transition in an economy. These things are going to come out in our, in our discussion today. Uh, we have a debate, internal debate, which you'll get played out between these two participants about the title itself. What, what is green growth? We're going to start with de definitional stuff when we get to the questions, believe me. What is green growth? What does it amount to? What language should we be using to, disguise, to discuss how we build successful economies in the light of the threat and risk associated with climate change? And we also know that uh, taking differing views and finding solutions is an essential part of any political debate. And so we're going to rehearse some of those arguments in the, in the Q&A that follows. And the format 
just so as you're prepared for this, is that, is that uh, Kate and Michael will make uh, two-minute introductions to their uh, arguments, and then we'll do Davos-style questions on a panel, and then we'll switch to you and the online audience. Right, now I've, I said it was a slight stunt, but I said we would flip a coin to see who goes first, so I'm going to do that, and you're going to call what you want. Kate. Tails. Well, it's heads. Michael, you want to go first or want to go second? I'll let Kate decide. I'll be gentle. I'll be gentle. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Kate's got props, I'm, so she can go first. The props are interesting. I think that's right. We should, yeah. we should, we, okay. and, and, also, and I think that's right also because I think that, you know, the, I mean, the, the, the Twitter debate that we had was around um, the donut and where it might lead, and therefore okay. probably it's so best to start with a little bit about okay. the donut. Otherwise, I could go off on a tangent, and I might get it wrong, or these people might not follow. So, okay. so quickly, let me introduce Kate. Kate likes to be described as a renegade economist, which is a good phrase, and uh, she's been focusing on exploring the, the economic mindset needed to address the 21st century's social and ecological challenges. Her book, many of you, I hope, will have come across, Donut Economics, has been very influential, translating to 15 languages, I'm told. And uh, I know Kate in part, at least, from, from the ECI at Oxford, where she's a senior visiting research associate, but there are other academic appointments that are important, including at the Cambridge Institute for Sustainability Leadership. And Kate also has an experience of entrepreneurship and has worked with the Human Development Report for UNDP and worked for Oxfam, writes regularly for The Guardian, and has made uh, her one of the top ten tweeters on economic transformations. Michael is chairman of his own organisation and CEO of Liebreich Associates, but he's probably best known, and I know him from the days when he started New Energy Finance, then became Bloomberg New Energy Finance, very, very highly regarded provider of information and research on clean energy and transport. He's visiting professor at Imperial College, a member of the UK DTI, oh, I said DTI as a Freudian slip, International Trade and Capital and Investment Advisory Board, and recently joined uh, Sustainable Development Capital's uh, Advisory Board. He was a long-standing member of Transport for London on the board there, and actually we're also on a board of a sustainable energy company in East Africa, Ignite Solar, which is currently grappling with the situation in Mozambique. Done a lot of great philanthropic work and was at one stage a downhill skier for Great Britain. And I can sometimes picture, even today, Michael <laughs> charging down with his goggles on. Right, so, Kate, you're going to go first with your two minutes and then Michael and then we'll have some questions. Great, thank you. And I'm also an ODI fellow, so it's very yes, nice to come home. home. How could you Should not say? That. In Zanzibar, 1994 to 97, working with micro entrepreneurs in the villages. Best job of my life. Um, I'm delighted to be here. And okay, let me kick off. So I'm going to start by debunking the title, which I found Michael and I already agree that we don't like. So <laughs> what a terrible thing if we just took green growth and solved climate change. That's so reductionist. There is so much more that we have to do. So I'm going to start. Since I couldn't bring any pictures, I cannot resist bringing toys. I brought a donut. So here's the challenge we face. Imagine humanity's use of Earth's resources radiating out from the middle of this rubber ring. It means that the hole in the middle is a place where people fall short on the essentials of life. 
without the food, water, healthcare, housing, energy, education, political voice, gender equality that every person has a claim to. We want to leave nobody in this hole, get everybody over this social foundation. But we cannot use Earth's resources collectively in such a way that we push ourselves beyond this outer ring, the ecological ceiling, because there we put so much pressure on the life-supporting systems of our planet, we cause climate breakdown. But not only, we kill off the living systems of the world. There seems to be a headline on this every day, whether it's insects across the world. We cannot just solve for climate change. We're killing the life, life, living systems of our planet. Land degradation, water shortage, a hole in the ozone layer. So these are the nine planetary boundaries of Earth system science around the outside. Inside are the social priorities of the Sustainable Development Goals, which all the governments of the world have agreed, every person in the world has a claim to meet. To me, this fundamentally changes what the shape of progress looks like. It is about coming into balance. It takes us actually back to the ancient Greek uh, concept of enough but not too much, a balance that we know in our bodies as health. Enough food, calories, water, exercise, but not too much of any. And here we need to find that balance of Earth, using Earth's resources to meet people's needs, but not so much that we tip ourselves out of the Earth system. And of course, it's a balance we've never found. Indeed, we've barely even tried to find it. We have only just begun taking this as a new definition of progress. But what it's very different from is the 20th century fixation on growth. Never travel without a hosepipe, it's so handy. So this is the exponential growth curve. And of course, it's the curve that sits in the back of every economist's mind, never actually drawn, almost never discussed, but is the deep shape of progress that underlies every economic conversation. We are financially, politically, and socially addicted to unending growth because we have structured our institutions to expect, demand, and depend upon endless GDP growth. Now, if you look to nature, it's a small flick of the wrist, but it changes everything. If you look to nature, this is nature's growth curve. Things grow, and then they grow up and mature, and they come to thrive. Indeed, in anything in nature that tries to buck that trend, destroys itself or the living system on which it depends. So to me, the question is, what is it about our economic systems that would make us believe that these are going to be the one system that somehow, magically, defy nature's trend and succeed by growing forever. I know that Michael, like myself, is not a fan of GDP, but then I would immediately put the question, if it's not GDP that's growing forever, what is it? What is this thing that we think in economic terms is going to grow forever? I don't believe that that is compatible with the conditions conducive to life for humanity to thrive on a living planet. Michael. Great. Thank you. And can I have a, I bought so many props, Where I didn't bring props? a pen and paper. Oh, Could anybody yeah. lend me one? Thanks. No, I know you need one. Oh, there's right. more coming. There's coming. Thank you. And that's great. Um, and I mean, the quick answer is what, what I think can and needs to, and I want to see grow forever, is human prosperity and well-being. I don't mean bank accounts. What I mean is the wealth of humans uh, using a definition that covers obviously their financial wealth, but also the, uh, the physical wealth, or it's our infrastructure, our cities. It's the intellectual capital, so better and better health treatments, more and more, uh, more, and more cultural activities, uh, and so on. 
social capital and of course natural capital. So um, that's why you know, I, I was a bit nervous about this kind of can green growth um, solve climate change or anything else because um, uh, immediately I start talking about growth, um, there's a sort of straw man that I must be talking about uh, GDP and I had a, uh, a discussion and then uh, on, also on Twitter and then I had a BBC I did a BBC uh, show with Professor Tim Jackson where you know he spent the entire time telling me that no 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 I must mean GDP if I'm talking about growth and I'm not I'm talking about um, I'm talking about uh, wealth across a broad range of categories of wealth because I believe that that correlates with human well-being. And the reason that we started on, on Twitter, and, I, and I'm going to say, you know, I, I, I probably agree with 80%. I've now read your book, not just looked at the cartoons, which are wonderful, but they don't, they're not the full version. I've read the book, and, and I, I'm going to say I'm going to you know, agree probably with 80% of it. I am completely committed to um, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the issue, not just of living within our planetary boundaries and it isn't just climate change it is also uh, it's also nitrogen cycles and phosphorus and it's biodiversity it's the full thing I'm fully signed up member of, 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 of the uh, the hawk brigade on that uh, and I'm also very committed to the human development and I, I mean you know, James will know others might know that I try and work on on, on a number of those things as well um, what was the thing that sort of niggled was this idea that, uh, and I'll use actually Kate words you've just used, a balance we have to find. And I think if we really sum up the difference, I think it's a balance we have to create. I see this challenge through the lens of innovation, that there isn't some magical area that we can all, it's just a question of hunting it down. And maybe it involves, as the other thing that slightly niggles is, is it a question of we all have to give stuff up in order to get into that kind of, uh, that, 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 that zone, into, the, into the, uh, the flotation device, into the donut. I think we have to create the donut and we have to do it through innovation. And we have to do it, and obviously my background, I've seen how we've made progress on, uh, on, on energy, on transportation, solar, wind, batteries, electric vehicles, and so on, we are creating safe space for that good outcome. Um, we have to do the same in steel and in cement and in, uh, in, in agriculture so we haven't got food loss and so on. We're not going to get there by somehow sort of all becoming B corporations or, or doing some sort of, you know, some, some modest changes to the system, uh, a bunch of, you know, redistributive taxation. That's not going to do it. What we need is massively distributed innovation. And the funny thing is, this is a variant of a discussion uh, that has been going on for a long time. And I discovered after the conversation with Professor Tim Jackson, um, which was um, Karl Popper against Herbert Mancuse. And they had this big discussion about revolution or reform and that's exactly the same discussion the question is we've got a system the system is performing badly I totally agree it's performing badly and the question is can we debug it by dealing with whether it's things like uh, externality costs or whether it's to do with innovation not being directed or whether it's to do with uh, I love the focus on political power which doesn't appear in any economics textbook until you know and, until uh, Kate's work you know I, but do, can we tweak and debug and keep the innovation engine going or do we have to make such dramatic changes um, and, and then potentially we break the innovation engine 
And I personally think that would be vastly, vastly risky. So we've started down <coughs> a pathway to synthesis already. <laughs> Sorry. But the first section that you are coming to some form of agreement on, I'd like to just explore a bit more, is the, is the language that you're using. Because in the end, that's pretty much all we've got as humans to, to explain and justify our existence of words and language. And pictures. Oh, OK, we've got pictures too. We've got for, but our language is crucial, all right? So uh, definitely agree that there's a problem with the concept of GDP. But, and you don't, neither of you like the green growth phase. Um, Tim Jackson's already cropped up with prosperity, which is a word that people can go to. We've even got, we've even got um, happiness in the frame today, the happiness day. There's certainly other values that society can orient around. Can we just explore a little bit more the language that you would like to use to set as a kind of objective? Uh, Michael, you were starting down that track, and maybe we'll come back to see if we can find, if not common, so general, you know, where, line up our words. I just want to make one limited defence of GDP. Yeah. Right? I don't want to be Mr. GDP in this discussion, but the one limited defence is it does correlate quite well with jobs because it's a measure of activity yeah. and jobs correlates with activity. And so there is a legitimacy if you're looking for full employment or if you're, looking, if you're worried about it. And by the way, if you're a developing country now, your number one thing you want is jobs for your vast numbers of young people. And so that's my defence of GDP done. But we can't just write it off and say oh, it was totally foolish ever to use it because yeah. it's not. Um, but I think, I don't know whether it comes under your category of language, but I think there's a wonderful quotation about economics. I think it's um, Michal Kaletsky, I'm not sure if that's how it's pronounced, that economics is the art of confusing stocks and flows. And my worry with the whole, you know, I, what I want is measures of stocks. If you run a company, you really care about the balance sheet. Profit and loss is great, but you know what? You can fiddle it. You can sell all your stock and not replenish it. You can do all sorts of stupid things. But you cannot fool a balance sheet. And so I want to see the balance sheet being the key way that we measure uh, success of nations and of, of economies um, because you can't fool them and because I believe that they correlate better with human well-being, much better than just measures of activity, which could be stupid or clever activity better, or whatever. Better than the, the concept of growth. Well, the growth is because I want humans to continue progressing. I don't want, I would like, I would like you know, my children's health to be better than mine and so on ad so infinitum. So it's not, sorry, I wasn't talking about growth there. I was just no. saying, let's measure. No, I'm just challenging, yeah. you know, yeah. because we've got these words we're trying to work around. And it, you're looking for metrics of progressive development of human society that are yeah. not necessarily so captured by these concepts of growth and certainly uh, not fully enough by the concept of, the, the, the metric of GDP. Absolutely correct, yes. Okay. How, how do you approach this language? What, what do you like? What do you feel is best so for us? I would say that the donut is absolutely a balance sheet. It is a metric of stocks, but it's our socio-ecological stocks. So in the centre, it is the percentage of people in the world who are literate, who are healthy, who are well-fed, who are housed, who have access to the internet. It's a stock of human capability. On the outside, it's negative stocks. It's the stock of CO2 in the atmosphere. And so it's stocks that we want to reduce. So this is the beginning. So we're agreeing on this, right? You want to look at the stocks of well-being because these are the sources of wealth. Where I think we might disagree, because I know you support uh, the, the idea of wealth accounting where you 
take man-made capital and human capital and add it together with natural capital and you get a nation's wealth. For me, that's deeply problematic because we act, when we have to monetize them to add them together, because you can't add together other metrics, so we monetize them so we can add them together. But in that process, we make them fungible. And the danger there is as well, we could have a little bit of top, less topsoil here in Africa if we have a few more PhDs. And there's a danger that we see the ecosystems as fungible. We know there are tipping points. So you cannot add these different forms of wealth together and say, as long as we've got enough in general, things are going up. That is why I really like the planetary boundaries framing, yeah. because it states natural wealth in natural metrics. You've got to have reduce the you know, greenhouse gas concentration in the atmosphere and enough land covered in its natural vegetation. So it's, you can't mix it in with financial wealth, man-made wealth. And it distinguishes climate change from land degradation. You can't, you can't uh, trade them off one against another. So it's very different from the 20th century calculations where we put everything into money and we can just sort of add them up. I think it's a fundamentally important move. And I think the 20th century was measured in the metric of money Simon Kuznets created national income in the 1930s. He warned us against it, but it got used anyway. We became obsessed with it. We are almost at the point where we are perfecting the financialization project, where economists say, well, every, if everything needs to be taken into account, all those externalities, we just need to price them, and they'll all get included. Just as that project's getting perfected, and I think it doesn't work, up is rising the project of natural and social metrics. And but thanks to big data, we can measure our planet almost in real time of how our planet is breathing, the health of the trees, the health of the people. So this century, we have a chance of using natural and social metrics in a way that the 20th century didn't have a chance. And they would, we will look back and not be able to believe that they measured, they tried to measure what we call progress and prosperity in such a crude single number. But, sorry, crude and simple, but you know, you've got a set of thresholds there. So yours would be how many children go to school. It doesn't say whether they're good schools, doesn't say whether they go on to secondary school, to university. Health is a very basic, you know, how many children die in, in, in and, and by the way, these are all issues I care, you know, I'm not, I'm not minimizing them. But it doesn't give you a gradient beyond that of saying, okay, well, actually, you know, my, my mother got cancer in uh, 10 years ago. And 20 years ago, she would not be with us. But because of progress, she now, you know, she has been able to have 10 really happy years, met grandchildren she wouldn't have. That's phenomenally valuable. I, do, I agree. How you monetize it, but it doesn't appear in the donut or in the flotation device. How you measure yeah. and whether you monetize. No, so but I'm, it's, I'm also, but it's an argument about satisfying you know. Well, but I'm saying that I think you do, because I think that just saying that there's some threshold, and let's get everybody up to that yeah. threshold, Right? So you've got a set of thresholds here, you've got a set of thresholds there. So one problem of, I've already said, is I think yeah. that creating, thinking of that as a, as a static area that you, sh that you find is a problem. But also, what do you do in between? And what is, you know, how do you, well, there's this huge area of, of activity that seems to be just simply unspoken to in that model. Yeah. So, first of all, I think the difference between finding the space and creating space, to me, that's a trivial We'll difference. probably resolve that. I, in I the think next it's few trivial. Yeah. Of course, well, we've never done it before. We've never even, <laughs> we haven't got a clue yet how to do it. No country is anywhere close to doing it. We definitely have to create it. We might have a disagreement about how to create it and what really matters. I don't think that's an important difference between us. You're absolutely right that the metrics I use to specify the social foundation are incredibly basic. And as soon as you've gotten close to one, you want to know more detail. All kids in school, what quality is school? Exactly, yeah. yes. But this is a social foundation. And this is about not leaving behind 
the poorest of the poor. It's not about specifying the best that anybody can reach to. It's saying, as humanity, as we aspire for better schools and longer lives and greater happiness days, let's leave nobody below the very basics. So it's setting a foundation. Absolutely agree we need other metrics for looking at what is the quality of life and, and prosperity, but never forgetting the foundation. So I just what, want to, I just want to which, um, highlight something that Kate said that I think is particularly important for the, this discussion, which is we are getting better, different yes. forms of data that will change consciousness. I mean, if we can, as we can now, look at the world, you know, with, with the satellite business like Planet, that is watching now the planet 24 hours a day and filming it in three meter resolution, this is going to affect our ability to assess progress or measure performance without necessarily converting it into a monetary currency. But there might be some other form of you know, political currency, social currency, something else to say, look, it was here, it's now there, I've tracked, I've measured that progress. So I just wanted to register that that's, I think, something profoundly important about a change that's underway. The question is and, and, how and, to yeah. value it in the right yeah. places for power to be exercised responsibly. And, and I would agree with that. I think that monetizing everything into dollars um, is very problematic because you do get this situation where somebody says, okay, so fine, you've just told me that species is worth $2 million. I'm going to make $10 million by, by trashing yeah. its habitat. Is that okay? Well, no, it's not okay. But, um, but still having the, de the debate around stocks rather than flows, and it may, need, may mean that you need to look at lots of stocks or few stocks. That I think we don't know yet. Yeah. Uh, and I was having this discussion, another great friend probably of all of us, uh, Dimitri Jangelis. Yes, I saw. And yeah. we had the debate about um, you know, social capital, and I was challenging him on how you measure it, and he said, well, you need court systems, you need police. And I said, okay, well, hang on a second. Does that include religious court, uh, the religious courts and the religious poli police in Saudi Arabia and Iran? Are they, part of, are they a social asset or are they a social liability? And he sort of has left Twitter for a few days thinking about it. <laughs> well, he's a good man. He'll be thinking he'll about be it. He'll be back. I know he'll business. be back. But, uh, all right. Okay. Yeah. We're all right with this. We'll, yeah. we'll, we'll just move on. The next section, um, I wanted to draw out um, politics and power, partly because of donut, partly because without you know, stereotyping you, you come from slightly different positions on the political spectrum. But you both have a full understanding of the nature of the problem, and you both have a strong alignment about wh where society needs to get to in order to be able to feel as if uh, we, are, we can be safe and prosperous and thrive as human beings. But I recall distinctly, it's one of the arguments I like to use, um, particularly in audiences that see themselves as conservative, that uh, in November 1990, uh, Margaret Thatcher said at the Second World Climate Conference that the climate science was so clear, the need for international cooperation so obvious, that we shouldn't be squabbling over who pays for it. So I just thought it would be good for a moment to see, all right, if even when you do have an understanding of the problem, there are different political choices. There are different views of the role of the state. There are different pathways to uh, accelerating innovation. Can we just play that a little bit? Can we declare a bit of preferences for choices and the political consequences of those choices? Okay. Uh, Michael, go first, okay. so, yeah. just to so, set it out. I think if I... I can I, let me take, just take a step back because I think that there's some words being used that were sort of conservative and so on and, and then... And, and I think that the... 
the importance of, of power, you know, it's almost like, yeah. I, I, you know, I think going into, before the financial crisis, you know, sort of finance was supposed to be this neutral thing, that your know, choices of finance didn't affect the value of the company uh, and all those sorts of things. But also, there's nothing about power. And I think that that is actually changing. I think Kate's absolutely brilliantly on the front line of that. And I would agree, even though I'm a conservative, yeah. I would agree because I think a lot of people who are billed as conservative are not actually conservative. They're actually corporatists. And, when, and I, I always react to people who say, you know, well, business won't like that. Well, I'm worried about enterprise. I'm not worried about business. I'm not worried about incumbents. I'm not worried about protecting that stuff. I'm worried about, about innovation and enterprise and then roles of, of responsibilities of individuals, communities, families, and so on. And so, you know, I can always, you know, I, because I find myself sort of punching left and punching right, because, uh, which is, but, but, the, but, you know, there are a lot of people who say that and are positioned as conservative that really, really aren't, if you actually examine. And where, it, where that becomes really um, important for this discussion is, and I wrote about this a few years ago, about the systems dynamics of the energy industry. And one way of describing it is to say this is this industry which pushes a whole bunch of its costs onto society, onto kids with asthma, onto climate change, onto destroying, you know, blowing up mountaintops, doing all sorts of things. And as a result, surprise, surprise, they're very profitable. And what they do is they take some of that money and they put that into lobbying, uh, sponsorship politicians and downright sort of bribery and dirty business, yeah. and that sustains the model. And I'm a, you know, so I'm like, I find like, well, hang on a second, what am I? Am I the sort of the one and only Marxist Thatcherite in the world? <laughs> you know, because that really, really bothers me. Yeah. But you can't say that that's. I say I think that that's a bug in the system. Yeah. That that isn't inherent to the system. That we've got this neoliberal system which has developed, you know, has delivered education and health outcomes and poverty outcomes and all sorts of really, you know, here we are, this is pretty good, right? It's been delivered by that system, but it has these bugs. And then the question is, do you want revolution or do you want reform? And I guess, as a conservative, I kind of want reform rather than you've, doing anything that risks breaking the whole of the system. To follow Sheila's work and take away fossil fuel subsidies. Oh, totally, yeah. yeah. I mean, apart from they're really stupid, you know, there, there is, yes, absolutely. And not only would I be happy, I've actually tried to do that. I've written, you know, some, of, some ideas on how one could do that in certain political economies. So, yes, absolutely. Okay. I'm, I'm really struck that you say we've got this neoliberal system that's developed to delivered health and education. <laughs> and I don't, I, that's not the history I feel like I've lived through in this country and many others. I... I I have kids in a primary school that I feel is massively underfunded and there are teachers because they're passionate about teachers, teaching, they are there, but the resources are not there. Many people feel like the NHS is falling apart. There are so many families in the UK going to food banks. So thanks to the neoliberal system, it's actually so often having to intervene because markets don't meet people's essential needs. And I want to say, you know, Adam Smith was absolutely right. Markets are very powerful. They are brilliant for coordinating the wants and needs of millions of people who never need meat through the price mechanism. But they only work for those who can pay and they only respect value that's priced. All other value they exploit. Those are huge caveats. And I think you know, we, they, they exploit unpriced value. We agree, and you've just been talking about them fossil fuels. But I, I don't understand why you would praise a neoliberal system for delivering 
these wonderful things because I think so many of the things we fundamentally value as a society are actually invested in by the state, which is the opposite of the neoliberal roll back the state and the market will work. Right, so can, can I just get a response? Yeah, yeah. First we're of all, because I'm another section yeah. where this becomes very. I'm relevant. not talking about libertarian, all this kind of Anne Rand you know, nonsense. I nearly used a rude word, but we're on camera, so I won't. But um, but I'm talking about a regulated. I mean, I don't know. To me, that's the, the reg, let's forget the word neoliberal. Regulated markets. A couple of things. First of all, very interesting. There, your kids in the in those schools, which you think are sort of they all they're all donut positive, right? They're all you know those kids are in school. They're healthy. Um, you know, oh yeah, you know, they're so the so, Foundation. Exactly. We are in so, one right. of the very richest countries yeah, yeah, no, in the world. Absolutely. We definitely should absolutely. be. But you're still. But I'm going back to the earlier discussion of I'd like there to be some metrics of progress, progress beyond that that would perhaps improve sure. that school or whatever. Absolutely. Um, but I was also coming at it from looking at the sort of you know the famous Our World in Data charts that look at maternal health and look at survival of kids and look at uh, a, 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 you know lifespan and look at deep poverty and those sorts of things. And the system, and by the way, you're talking something, you know, I'm going to kind of start disagreeing with myself. I could easily be here, you know, if I was, if, if you were Dan Hannon and I was here, <laughs> I'd be arguing about how those are not the right metric and all the rest of it, you know. So, uh, because I'm, and also, I'd be very aware of the history uh, in terms of exploitation and all the stuff that uh, Jason, uh, I'm not sure how to pronounce Hickle. it, Hickel talks about. And so, on. so I'm very aware that it's not as simple as, you know, you know, our but system good. But we have had, we charts. have had, yeah, exactly. We have had enormous progress, and we are all here as a result of a system which fundamentally has delivered vast benefits. And I, you know, I think, and I, by the way, I like the fact that you actually acknowledge that. Unlike you know, Professor Jackson and Jason Hickel, they'll try and persuade us that that the world is getting worse and worse and worse. And I think on the environmental indicators, the planetary boundaries, yes, but on other things, it's not. And I, I like that you acknowledge that. Or at least partially in your well, book, we're going, if we're not going here. To move on to the next section. There is a natural flow into the innovation and yep. technology discussion because there's a lot of the questions that you know. I'm looking at questions that were sent in in advance. A lot of those questions are about well, how do you facilitate, enable, encourage, accelerate the deployment of the technologies that could be part of the solutions to climate change? And we don't need to. Uh, overemphasize the techno fix yeah. to climate change. We're not going to do that. But we are going to ask, okay, what is the role of the state in doing that? Where does the capital come from? How is, how is in this case, quite a bit of it is to do with flow as opposed to stock, because we've, we've got plenty of finance to support innovation. It's a question of its flow. Where does it go? And, and, and where is the innovation taking place? And, and that is a global question, not just for this economy. So I'd like to draw that out. And, and, when I, and when we talk about innovation, we won't just talk about technology innovation because there's social innovation and institutional innovation. There's business model innovation. There's a lot going on that's about how one transitions into a different economy that combines capital, technology, innovation, educational progress, etc. So I just want to draw a bit more out following on the previous discussion about politics and power, innovation, where does the answer lie? Where's, what, what, are your, what are your perspectives on this? Okay, so let me start with what an economy is made up of, right? Because we've been talking the market, the state, the market and the state, and I think that's very 20th century with all respect. We, we get so caught in it. The 20th century is obsessed with this boxing match between you know, free market capitalism and state-loving socialism that we completely lost sight of two other fundamental sources of provisioning. There's the household where we all begin every day, and anybody with kids or parents 
is, you know, cooking, washing, cleaning, sweeping, or calling their parents and checking their partners, we're all okay. This is one of our fundamental social roles. It's unpaid care. It's essential to our well-being. But also there's the commons, that place where we come together and co-create things that we value, often without money changing hands, outside of the market, outside of the state. It was the work of Ellen Ostrom, of course, that made the commons resurgent. Garrett Harding slapped it down in 1968 and said it's a tragedy. Eleanor Ostrom actually went and bothered and did some field research and she said, no, I think I find sometimes it's a triumph. What I think, so I'm bring this to technology, right? We've got these four forms of provisioning. Now, I think we live in a time of unprecedented opportunity because for the first time in human history, the four fundamental technologies that are involved in every industry, how you generate energy, yep. how you produce stuff, how you communicate, and how you create and share knowledge, for the first time in human history, they are asking to be distributive by design. So, okay. So, so energy. Twentieth century, it was an oil rig, one big piece of capital that you have to invest in, coal mine, pipeline, right? Twenty-first century, it is a network of solar panels. Got solar panels on the roof of this building yet? Uh, no, I've got okay. my, my building. Next year, <laughs> there will be solar panels on the roof of the ODI. Okay, we've got this distributed network. Production. 20th century, big factories, all the little workers come out of their house, get a wage labor and go back home. The money goes off to shareholders, of course, but it was a centralized production system. 21st century, we've got desktop 3D printers, we've got fab labs. You can own your own very cutting edge micro enterprise. 20th, 20th century, telephone call, literally every phone call went through an operator okay. switchboard. You've already got a node of this digital communications in your pocket and so has Many people in Tanzania and India and Bhutan across the world, we have this one already. And then knowledge, since the 15th century, it's been held in patents and copyrights, of course, designed to share knowledge. But as anyone who knows about pharmaceuticals or IT, it actually gets gamed, protect, defend, don't come near my innovation patch. This century, we have got the Creative Commons licensing. We've got open source. For me, the combination of renewable energies distributed manufacturing on desktops, the internet, and Creative Commons licensing is the most phenomenal, unprecedented opportunity completely transform the base of production. And it's asking to be distributed by design. Now, the question is, will it ever happen? So to me, it's not about the technologies, it's about who owns them and how they use them. And I'm just gonna use it with these two smartphones here, right? Same function, very different design. This is an iPhone. So if it breaks, I have to send it back to Apple because it's glued shut. This is glued shut, 20th century proprietary technology. Patents, and they want to do their own little circular economy, but keep it totally in-house. This, of course, is a Fairphone, which is literally transparent. And here on the back, it says, yours to open, yours to keep. If it breaks or you want to upgrade it, there's a video on YouTube that tells you how to click it open. Go in, upgrade the battery, upgrade the SIM card. It's modular, open source, open shared standards, and they're looking for others to share those standards to create an ecosystem. To me, the innovations we need are to move from glue shut technology to click open modular ecosystem design. And that is an innovation, not in inventing things we don't yet have, but this exists. It's an innovation in the structure of business and the relationship between the market and the commons. So that, to me, is the space of innovation, but to mainstream capital doesn't want it because you don't capture the value. This mainstream capital keeps investing in this, and I would love to hear Michael's view on this, sincerely. How do we get companies to recognize we need to create a commons if we're going to meet, meet the needs of all within the means of the planet? Great, great. Um, so I, 
again, I could, argue, I could argue that side of there, and I spend quite a bit of my, you know, my life doing that to people who think that all of that stuff is absolutely of no impact whatsoever. But, uh, so I would be saying, no, no, it is, it is. The, the challenge is that, you know, we could put, as an example, you put solar, on the, solar panel on the roof of this, it won't heat this place, right? Not only will it not heat it um, in the summer, it definitely won't heat it in the winter when not only do you need the heat, but also you don't have any sun. I mean, I have solar on my uh, house, which I, if anybody saw was in the FT this weekend, um, and, and it talked about some of the pain, some of the difficulty of doing that project. Um, but, but also my solar panels produce one thirteenth of the output during the winter that they do during the summer. So we've got to heat. And, and you know, just the physics of some of the big chunks that we have to do militate against the distributive, you know, of course we, you know, it, it's wonderful, we all get sort of really excited about the Green New Deal and isn't it great and, and we should definitely, this direction, but unfortunately we have to do things like decarbonize steel, the steel industry, and that's not going to be done by a cooperative, it's not going to be done by, um, you know, William the boy who harnessed the wind and those sorts of things. These are, you know, it, it's just, we're just not at the point and, and I don't think, uh, I don't think we ever will be because, you know, that phone, the screen of that Fairphone is still made by some massive Chinese company, which is probably state-funded, could be an American company funded through Wall Street. And that, you know, that isn't going to change. So I, I did this project in Sierra Leone where I put um, solar and batteries into a neonatal intensive care unit where you know, the babies need warmth and they need oxygen. And it was just tragic that this, you know, the system had really failed. You can't think of a more vulnerable child, a vulnerable human, than a premature baby in, in, a, in, in Sierra Leone. But the fact is that the solar panels and the batteries that, we put, that were put in were produced on a massive scale by vast enterprises. So really, what we're going to have is a mashup of big and small, and the right the, the structure will look like a fractal in a sense. There'll be, you know, there will be these enterprises at the edge and so on. How you get there is really challenging. I think that some of the stuff that you wrote about, I really like about the trend towards circularity, moving, shifting the burden of taxation away from employment, which is effectively a pretty much a good, um, and putting it onto um, resources and or pollution so that we go more circular and so that companies see the benefit, or they see, they see it in their pocket, and, and not companies only, but, but um, it could be social enterprise. I'm really not that bothered about ownership structures. I, I think that's you know, the, the way to go. And I think, so that's the sort of stuff I get excited about. And I guess, my, that was, sorry, let me tell you one other thing, which is you use the word market. When you talk, I, I thought what you did uh, um, about completing the four sources of value add, and saying that you've got state and you've got, uh, you see, I'm having trouble saying it because you say market and I would say enterprise. The market for me is just a price discovery mechanism, right? Markets are not, you know, you, you've got in your, you use the word market, but I think what you mean is private enterprise, but I'm not entirely sure. And it confuses, there's a lot of people you could get into the debate, but you push them away because of conflating market and business and private enterprise and then making out that it's, you know, constraining it, and in some cases, not you, but some of the others that, you know, like Tim Jackson and others, would tend to sort of say that it's bad. And this, even the SDGs portray business and trade and finance. All of their reference to it are about how people have to be protected from them, not about what they can actually achieve. So I think that it is, um, it's really important to, to, to you know, pr 
private enterprise is massive, is, it, it delivers enormous amounts of innovation. It is an innovation machine. Yes, lots of it comes from the state. Mariana Mazzucato has brilliantly shown it. But in terms of application and rolling out products, all of the things you've brought in were not made by state-owned enterprises, and they were not made, you know, made by cooperatives. They were made by probably Chinese companies, by the looks of them. And and I think that's what concerns me in a way. That's why I react to, uh, slightly allergically to some of the things, you know, because if we break that innovation engine, if we start, you know, and you know, if you look at it, your stuff you do on circular, great, taxation of resources, taxation of pollution, or, or you know, great. But then you talk about um, global transaction tax, global wealth tax, global this tax, and global that tax. And of course, the problem is you end up in a cul-de-sac, not speaking to anybody who's even vaguely right of left of center with the moment you, you push those, that agenda. And then, you know, or if you succeed, then the worry is that that breaks the innovation engine. And that's why I think this is such an important debate. We have to move on. Sorry. Sorry, that was a long verse. I know, but yep. it's okay. Um, because we've got loads of questions and I don't know how the hell we're gonna get through them all. Um, would you mind if I, audience, if I take a couple that have come through here so they feel part of our conversation, then I'll come back to you. So there are mics in the room. Um, I can't, in a way we've touched upon this a little bit, but I can't resist because he's former head of this organization, Simon Maxwell, of course, has sent in a question. Um, he doesn't like the question. He thinks it's an incomplete question. Shouldn't it be, can green growth provide the answer to both poverty reduction and climate change? And then uh, another one. Uh, uh, this guy, it's hard to read out quickly. Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos are working to bust our planetary boundaries. Could this become a focus for innovation this century? This is someone, I think, trying to escape to another planet. Um, and then uh, um, Omar from Bradford says, uh, for Michael, what is your definition of wealth? Uh, for many of us, when we hear wealth uh, and we swiftly make a connection to economic growth, which inevitably speaks to GDP, yet Michael is arguing for growth, but not GDP growth. Therefore, what is his definition of wealth? Well, you've had a go at that already a little bit. So can we just check back through those things? Um, anything you'd like to say to Simon and Sol and Omar that we haven't already covered, or you think we've covered them all already? What would you like to say to so them? So I'll just pick up the one about um, people are trying to bust through planetary boundaries. Yeah. And actually, I have to say, when I first drew the donut diagram, some, um, some colleagues or some people, uh, particularly Americans, it was interesting, said, whoa, we Americans, we don't like boundaries. Don't like boundaries. Don't like boundaries. When we see a boundary, we want to break right through it. And I said, really? So when your baby daughter has a temperature of 40 degrees, do you say, go right through that boundary, girl? No, you don't. You bring her temperature right back down as fast as you can because we know that our health lies within boundaries. And we are beginning to understand from the human body to the planetary body. We're only just beginning to understand this. I think we're in a deep journey of understanding of the relationship of humanity to the rest of the living world and our profound interdependence upon it. And I'll add to that, that I think the most creative people, and this comes back to innovation, I think the most creative people know that boundaries unleash our creativity, creative. right? Constraint and creativity go together. Ask any artist yeah, or engineer. Right, right? right. They'll all tell you. Mozart with his five-octave yeah. piano. Yeah. You know, Naomi Osaka on a tennis court. 
a, yeah. a skateboarder is yeah. desperately looking for boundaries. There's nothing yeah. to skateboard yeah. on a flatland. Yeah. Architect says, please don't give me a blank sheet of paper. Yeah. And actually, I want to go back to the point about innovation. I agree innovation is hugely important, but when I look to some of the most powerful innovations, they're not driven by, they're not driven by capital. They're driven by someone. Someone who had a darn smart idea. Someone who was determined to do something. You were determined to, to renovate your house in a completely different way and you went through sweat and tears beyond the pale to make it happen. You didn't do it for financial return. You did it because you knew it could be done. You were darn, you know, determined to do it. And it's so many, you know, the whole story of Fairphone is Bas van Abel was determined to show that you yeah, could have a smartphone possible. that wasn't exploitive. Turns out it's not completely possible because there's so much exploitation and change. So there are genius people who are innovators and some of the world's best software engineers, when they're recruited to big companies, they don't want the maximum pay. What they have to say is, you need to give me 10, 15, 20% of my time in open source. Because yeah. otherwise you kill me off in this little fenced-in thing. So the most innovative people want to innovate things. How do we get finance to back them? At the moment, I think so much is driven by what finance wants to do rather than the most innovative people. Well, it's true that most entrepreneurs have that basic belief, determination yeah. to do the thing that they want to do better than anybody else and the money is a means to it, it's instrumental. Yeah. And you and I we'll spend a lot of time back. in that. We'll push back because I think that um, I, I completely agree that you know, most innovation is uh, sort of an individual, it's an individual sport, um, but not, not all. In fact, you know, when you look at things like you know, building Crossrail, it's not one brilliant person that decided that we'll have Crossrail, it's actually a bunch of and you know, uh, organisations, some you know, state and public, uh, and some private. In fact, most of it uh, of the sort of hard work. If you look at it in terms of the value add, the delivery. You know, companies are structured in such a way as to harness resources yeah. and individuals and lots and millions of micro innovations and put them into big projects. We have a system that works, and I think it, it's just—it's very nice to talk about the kind of the brilliant genius that does these things, or the you know the, the boy who harnessed the wind, William whatever is Cam uh, Quimber, and and I I give complete respect to those people, but I also think that they can't deliver on the scale of innovation that we need. But I want to come back to this question about the the, the title and the whatever and what is going to grow. Yeah. Can I because and I. We without, need to nail this now. Right. Yeah. Without giving, without trying with, to do it, without using, you know, words like exergy and, uh, and <laughs> so on. You're free. In a place right. like this, you're free, feel okay. free to exergize. The, 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 <laughs> I want to, but explicitly, what can keep growing forever, why I think the, the, the economy, if you, if you define it as wealth, including intellectual property, including all, all of the, um, uh, you know, essentially the, the kind of the, the stocks, not the flows, view, including intellectual property and cultural artifacts and so on, that can keep growing because my definition of what is the economy is that it's a manifestation of complexity. It's, you know, so you can, you can always have better wines or more stories or more people watching the football World Cup and so on, that it's not, you know, this model of an economy as being you dig something out of the ground, you add value to it, and then you either recycle it, good, or throw it away, bad. That, that model just is so broken, so not what an economy consists of. So, and, and so you get in this discussion, in the background, I wanted to make it explicit, yeah. there's a kind of, you can't grow forever on a finite planet. Well, the answer is, we have near infinite supplies of high quality energy, whether it's nuclear, whether it's solar. And with that, the physics 
the proven Nobel Prize won by Ilya Prigozhin physics is that complexity can continue forever. It's what nature does. Right? Nature has been gaining. We've with, been gaining. With or without us. With or without us. Well, for, for, for what is it? 20, 23 yeah. hours, 59 minutes, 57 yeah, yeah. seconds without us. And for three seconds, you know, for two and a half seconds, we're, you know, we're now threatening. But, you know, nature has been growing complexity and, bi and the, you know, biomass and biocomplexity. And what we need to do, if you start taking the really deep, long future um, challenge that we have, it's to kind of, you know, to, to, to do that, but we're not doing it just with biomaterials, but also with, um, with, with the, the technical the materials that we're producing so that they will also become part of some circulating, infinitely increasing complex. I, I, I don't, and the economy, by the way, under that model, is not a subset of the biological system. It's actually the same thing. We are all actually integrated. We can get really sort of philosophical and yeah. go and have beers now, but... Quickly, because I want, there's one thing I want to return to, which is Simon's point about, uh, I mean, he's anticipating that there might not be, but whether there be, was as, as a trade-off between uh, poverty alleviation and solving the climate problem. And we've touched upon this a little bit already because of the technology innovations we, we went through, and I want to return to it. So but I but to deal, deal with this. Because for me, this is the nub of the issue, and I don't know if it's another disagreement, but I would sincerely like to hear your view on this. You're saying what can grow endlessly is... Complexity. Complexity, good complexity, added, I yeah. guess you're implying. Yeah. Good, 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 good complexity in human flourishing and well-being. Okay. Yeah. Well, I okay. hope so, otherwise I'll, we're in trouble, right? I'll, I'll go with that, yeah. um, if we need to go with that. But we have an economy now that is structurally dependent upon not that kind of growth, upon the growth of financial return, particularly financial system. So the financial system would turn around and say, well, that's all very nice, but that's not going to do enough for me. Because right here, we may be generating value. I hope there's some value of this conversation, but I don't, did they pay you to turn up? They didn't pay me. Did they pay you? <laughs> These guys didn't pay. I don't want to get anybody in trouble. Okay. <laughs> the people on live stream didn't pay. I mean, fi a financier would come along and say, whoa, that's a waste of value going on. They should pay to come in. We should be paid. The people on live stream should pay. And that would all add to financial return. And the ODI could, you know, if it was an enterprise, could be taxed. And that fine, or, or could pay return on capital borrowed. So uh, what's, how do we do this, Michael? I agree with you. Let's go with prosperity. But you know what? The financial system ain't having that. The financial system is designed to endlessly accumulate wealth. And that, for me, is why so much private enterprise, if it's funded by capital that says, uh, and more please, and 3% and 3%, it shapes what business will and won't do. It shapes what innovations do and don't happen. And it endlessly extracts. So that is what is incompatible with life on a thriving planet. And I would love to understand how you square that. Yeah. But there are some assumptions there. This assumption always gets stated that the financial system requires growth. And I'm not, um, I mean, I maybe, maybe that I'm not enough of a macroeconomist to know where that assumption sits within the system. But I don't, I, I mean, to me, it's not, um, you know, Japan, you know, hasn't had, had, you know, decades of no growth. And there's also, you know, it, it, why, why is there always this statement that the financial system requires... Now, there's lots of stupid stuff that goes on in the financial system about, you know, people writing articles about, about some company's quarterly results and, 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 and so on. 
in my financial system, I care about cash flow, I care about value creation, I actually care about the stakeholders. You can look at a company like, um, like Unilever under Paul Polman's leadership. Um, and I'm just not sure, there's always this thing that I can't answer why, what should, what should be in place of something, because I'm not sure that it's broken. And you know, in your book, you talk about demurrage, or how, you, how do you pronounce demurrage. it? Demurrage. Demurrage, where you have to pay to use money but it's also called inflation. I mean, it's just so inflation is demurrage. If we don't invest in our, you know, in our stock, if we don't, you know, if we don't, if, so you've got depreciation and if you don't keep investing, then that's a form of, a form of demurrage as well. So I'm not sure, I think that, don't get me wrong, I, you know, do I think that the way, do I think the financial system is fantastic? No, do I think that people messing around with, with you know, LIBOR indices and doing all sorts of, no, I think these are repellent practices and, and the financial system is full of them, just as the energy system is full of you know, bribing of people and buying senators and congressmen. But I, don't, I do think that these are bugs. I'm not, I'm not convinced at all that it's a feature. And so let, let me- Can I just stop the flow, sorry for a yeah. minute. I want to go back to uh, Simon's can idea just, about. Uh, yeah, we, I, I this, do too. I place, do too. Yeah. In this place, we need to have a focus yeah. on on poverty and poverty yeah. alleviation. Something has happened. Is happening, shall we say, in the technology innovation that both of you have referred to, that allow us to imagine how, for example, an example, but a big one, renewable energy, storage. Uh, digital demand-side management, even electric vehicles, all these technologies are converging. And we now know that anywhere in the world, without subsidy, uh, solar power, for example, is going to beat fossil fuel on cost, certainly at various scales of deployment. And it's also quick to deploy if you haven't got any access to power at all. So it's reaching people who have no energy faster than the dirtier alternatives, the ones where the costs are all socialised. So that's allow you're allowed to have, I think, great hope at then that transformation. But we need to be very focused on whether these, your separate or different approaches get us to alleviate th those hundred, the, the, the number I couldn't make up, but those people who are still in abject poverty, it's probably someone here who give me a very good number, um, in need of the most basic form of provision of energy, say. So do we feel, each of you, do you feel what's the best way to get there? How do we win this debate or bring these arguments together so we feel confident that that can be achieved? I'm going to come back to innovation because I think, you know, yes, solar is cheap and batteries are cheap, but it doesn't work during a cyclone, doesn't work during the winter, it doesn't, you know, there's lots of things that it still doesn't do. And so, you know, I, we're going to make enormous uh, progress. There's 960 million people without basic energy services. Three, four hundred million will be done through grid extension. Three, four hundred million done through solar. But there'll still be three, four hundred million at the end of the SDG period 2030 without. And the provision has to go beyond just you know charging a phone and having a light. We've really got to get people fully engaged in, in all of the benefits of healthcare and education and cultural activity and and so on. So we can't stop. We just we just can't stop innovating, I'm afraid. Yeah. Um, it but, still gets but, back around can, to how that happens and how the, and how the resource that is but, derived from the innovation is distributed to those 
who, who don't have and that, access. And that doesn't mean that there isn't a role for all sorts of, you know, the full spectrum of, I've just come from um, DFID, they're worrying about this, I'm trying to help. You know, there's a full spectrum of activity right. from, pro from profit making. Some things that will just happen because people want to buy the things and some things that will be, you know, a lot of adaptation uh, and some, you know, very, very poor will simply have to be aid and we have a responsibility partly because of historic emissions, partly because of we're all humans and so on. I just want to come back to one thing, if I might, yeah. unless you want to dive in on, um, which is on poverty alleviation versus climate, and which triggers a thought that you know we have to also be really realistic about what um, what can be achieved in terms of you know in on you know we've already had a one degree of temperature change, we are we are locked into one and a half degrees in uh, right now. It's, you worse, know, it's worse than and that. And it's worse than that. And we've got to be realistic because I think very often in these discussions, and I think you've got that in the Green New Deal discussion in the US and in some of the discussions with the sort of the, you know, the, the, the degrowthers and so on, it's this idea that you've got kind of current system, even if you tweak it to do the best possible, you do all the things that, that, that Michael talks about, is still going to be probably, you know, two degrees, one and three quarter degrees, maybe two and something. And the alternative is we stop everything right now and we get no climate change. Like, yes, but we also get, you know, some other really, really bad things. And so I think we've got to be realistic about what are we contest what is the what is the contestable outcome? I think we're in the business of in climate, it's a question of what is the least worst outcome, which is probably somewhere around two degrees, rather than postulating that, well, that's not good enough, and therefore we're just going to demand that we have no more warning from tomorrow. Well, guess what? Tomorrow, you will switch your lights on and you will use some coal-fired power and you will, you know, drive a car and, 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 and so will million, billions of other people. So we've got to have a really adult discussion about what good looks like. In which case, I would say, let's see some more ambitious governments 100%. just putting in place, like the governments, you know, the UK used to be ahead and now the pack's moved forward. And Sweden, 1st of January last year, said by 2045, we're going to have net zero carbon emissions in this country. Fantastic piece of legislation. It's a long, legal, loud message. It doesn't actually cost a penny on the day. You sign a piece of paper, but it just sends rippling information through And it's fed through the institutionary investors who it are goes all, all the way through. paying attention. So where, and, and for me, the school strikers, which I think is an incredibly important movement, yeah. precisely are demanding that kind of Agreed. action. But let's see it. I mean, Michael Jacobs came up with this wonderful idea of the Sustainable Economy Act for the UK. If it's true that boundaries drive innovation, let's not just do it on climate. Let's do it on water use, on land conversion, on fertilised use. Let's take the UK's share of planetary boundaries, set that budget and ratchet it in until we come back in. I mean, that to me is the ultimate challenge to innovate those. Innovate against that constraint. Innovate against that constraint. Bring it on. All right. We've got to go to questions. Um, oh, there's loads already. Uh, we've got to get to, can we get this, this lady in the, with the cool hat? <laughs> I'm a fan of hats, you know, it's a bias. Right. You go for it. And then we've got, we've got Dirk here and then... We'll take probably another one or two, and then we'll, we'll, we'll go around again. We've got time. Go ahead. Sure. Kate, you just touched on this, but um, I'd like to ask both of you about implementation. Uh, what specific changes would each of you like to see policy or governance make to get closer to your ideal economic models? And in that, I'm wondering if there is any overlap between the two of you. Really interesting. Hold it, hold it for a second. Dirk. So, you know, a policy response. Dirk Tefelder from ODI. My question is a bit, uh, is a bit similar. It's really important to be thinking about the type of growth. Uh, so we want really transformational growth happening. And we want to have, uh, see things 
being different. Uh, you want to do different things. You want to innovate, and at a pace uh, that is much different from what it has been in the past. And the question is a bit how to do it. Uh, and uh, from that perspective, you really need to think about political economy and thinking around how to how to do it. So I'd like to hear to hear you a bit saying a bit more about how you can change government and business on this. For uh, one example is at the moment there's this operation yellow hammer going on in the UK where suddenly there are about uh, hundreds uh, and actually thousands of civil servants being uh, taken from departments to prepare for uh, a no deal brexit why can't we turn them into green hammers uh, <laughs> and w why isn't that possible and think about uh, a p give them a purpose around this uh, what is needed for this how, how what can we do and i think if you if you do that perhaps there is a you can then help to create this transformative growth that is can create more jobs, but it's also good for all the planetary boundaries uh, or staying within the planetary boundaries. Just back there, can you see the microphone is on, but by the screen? Thank you. Um, my name's Rob Shaw. Uh, question about the sort of capitalist system that, that underpins so much of the progress uh, that we've, we've all had over uh, our lifetimes. It, in, with technology driving, uh, increasingly driving away the scarcity component of that through uh, zero marginal cost um, uh, factors in terms of, uh, of how we produce things and spreading across the economy, can capitalism continue to work uh, to deliver growth uh, however you define it? Okay. Who wants to go first? Pick, pick any one or all. We've got time. We've got a good 15 minutes to get some more questions out. Oh, I'll just jump in. Um, so on, on what can governments do? So I already mentioned ambition, and I think it's the first and biggest, and it's the, it's the frame setter, and it's free, right? You can just do that today and set ambition. But then, of course, it's not free because you actually have to follow through and deliver on it. The, the wonderful thing about Sweden is they've committed in law to show that every five years their policies are in line with meeting those targets. Uh, but also being agile. So I agree with Michael that about complexity, certain, and there's good complexity, bad complexity, and we don't know how things are actually going to play out. And I think we need a new kind of politics because we ha we've come from an era where governments come up with a manifesto, we're going to do these policies, they get into power, they have to put them in place, doesn't quite play out how they thought, and then they spend a lot of time trying to show that it worked. In Finland, they have a wonderful department of the government called Experimental Finland. They have about 27 policy experiments going on, one in basic income, lots of people heard about that, one in how children learn languages in schools, one in getting people to use bicycles in the city. They run policy experiments in parts of the country, they observe what happens, they learn from it, and then they decide to turn into policy. Allowing something to not work doesn't mean it failed, it means we learned. I, I'm not even going to mention what's going on in this country at the moment, but even just the structure of the House of Commons two parties baying at each other across the, uh, across the rows does not allow for the kind of policymaking that the era of complexity demands. So in Finland, I'm going to bet they sit in a little semicircle and the far less grand and pompous characters actually listening and having more of a debate because that's what you need to be able to have experimental policymaking. So there's one on, on that. I, w I would also love to see governments, again, recognize that we've got enterprise, state, commons and the household. Let's see enterprise, state and the commons. So the, the state has a crucial role in creating the space of pre-competitive collaboration. Bring together the plastic manufacturers or the uh, metals producers or the IT companies and say, right, 
you can use three plastics. What are they going to be? Uh, and we're going to create an ecosystem. If we're going to have a circular economy, it has to be an ecosystem. It can't be siloed company by company. The state has the role to make that ecosystem happen. We demand that you, we require in regulation you have open standards, you have click open products, you set the framework for modular open design. So to me, those are crucial things that additionally to what we've already said that the state could do. Cool. Okay, very good. Um, let me take the capitalist point first because it doesn't link as well to the other two. The, the, the question about um, what we've got is a system that is, you know, as we move from dirty to clean, one of the things that's happening is we're moving from operating cost to capital. Right? It's just because you don't have, you're not burning fuel and, and so it, we, we're, we're moving to a different uh, type of model. And you see it in the electrical system. As soon as a country gets something like, you know, 10% wind and solar in its system, it basically breaks regulation, right? Yeah. I mean, you see this everywhere. And the reason it does, it's a very low threshold, right? Because yeah. every time it's really windy or really sunny, somebody is dumping power at zero marginal cost. And the price formation in the electrical markets, following lots of reforms driven by the UK back in the sort of 80s, 90s, and whatever, everybody does this now, they price on the marginal cost of the marginal unit. And now the marginal unit goes to naught, as it goes to, and so this is a problem. It's got nothing to do with capitalism, by the way. It's got to do with it's got to do with a different uh, price formation mechanism. Um, I would say it's not designed got nothing around another designed around old yeah. technologies. You know how you how you priced, um, I don't know, horse-drawn carriages to cross the Alps is probably different from a motorway toll. And you know, that, so there's some things have to catch up. And by the way, there's a big challenge. Uh, I would say. Um, in finance overall, and I think it's one that the Treasury hasn't yet grappled with, and lots of, in that as we go from um, variable cost to fixed cost, what we've actually got to do really to solve this in finance terms is we, this generation, have to invest like crazy for 20 or 30 years, and then the generation after will benefit from that or not, depending on whether we do it or not. It'll just pull forwards a lot of spending. So it's kind of fewer... Um, you know, fewer, you know, brilliant people working on Kim Kardashian's, uh, you know, um, you know, next episode or whatever, and more of them building solar, and then afterwards everybody gets to involve, you know, gets to enjoy more, more whatever. Um, <laughs> but but it has implications for pensions. Um, that some of the big providers of dividends, the oil and gas companies are going to go away, the coal companies already have. It's got implications for formation of capital and savings. Uh, it's got, uh, you know, where the tax takes come from and so on. So I would, I, I think you're onto something really important, but I think if you look at it only through the kind of, can capitalism cope? I think nothing can cope. And we need to have really good uh, thought on that. In terms of single um, policy wishes, um, the first thing I would want, I mean, I don't know if it's the first, maybe I'm not going to put them in order. Campaign finance reform. Yay. If industries are externalizing costs on other people, then they should not be in the business of buying politicians, full stop, end of story. Not least right? with their, with their um, investors' money, who they're immediately putting at risk because of the systemic risk that comes from climate change. And it's the investors might, although the investors, I hate to say it, but well, some of them are quite happy quite because happy the rents, they, they have a nice system that yeah. pro produces the, the, the dividends, which is our pensions, and they don't want to, you know, yeah. So that you've got lots of investors that are members, by the way, both of you know, WBCSD, you know, lobbying for climate action, and also Business Europe lobbying against climate action, and that has to stop too. 
right? Because I love, you know, systems thinking, 100%. All of this equilibrium, it's all nonsense. One of the acupuncture points in the system is campaign finance. Um, other things, um, carbon price, not one, not global, lots of carbon prices, depending on co-benefits, sectors, countries, political economies, but you've got to price those, those externalities. And then, um, uh, but it won't be enough because what that won't do is provide the very long-term signals. And I think, you know, Mariana Mazzucato's work on where technologies come from, they come from the, the, from, from the state, state-funded, you know, R of the R&D. I believe, unlike her, you've then got to, you've got to get them out into the, into the market, but I would call it business and enterprise, to create the applications and to roll things out. But um, an industrial policy but with a gradient. So it says, and to your point, to so have an industrial policy, we've got the clean growth strategy in the UK and it isn't perfect and they've just approved another stupid coal, fired, uh, coal mine. And, you know, it, it's nonsense. But at least we have one. It may not be as good as Sweden. But we're, get, we're getting there. Every country should have that sort of a directional industrial policy. Um, Take me a long time to get to that as a good sort of, you know, good conservative, but we need industrial policy and it needs to, it needs to push us in mission-oriented directions. So that's very important. Um, and then on yellow hammers and green hammers, I mean, I'm an oddity here, as some of you might know. I'm actually, uh, uh, I actually don't think that our political system is broken. Um, and I'm, uh, you know, I, I think that Brexit will come and it will go. I wrote before it, there was lots of, oh, you know, Brexit is terrible for the environment. I hope what we've seen is that actually um, there's some pretty good ideas that could be accelerated after that process, but that's not the discussion for today. But there was a sort of sideswipe at how broken our system is. I actually love the fact that our politics is reinvigorated, right? How many people here are watching Prime Minister's Question Time today, or, or you know, and, and how many would have watched it three years ago, right? And I, I'm, you know, our democracy is good and old and robust, and as long as Burko doesn't break it, it'll be around for another thousand years. Is this what you mean by a growth in complexity? <laughs> yeah, 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 value adding. All right. <laughs> last round, last round. Oh my word, there's loads now. There's a Sarah, and then this gentleman here, and then that'll be probably it, I think, because we'll have to wrap up. Thanks, James. Sarah Pantulano from ODI. Um, I just wanted to ask something about something you've marginally touched upon, but I think has perhaps deserves a lot more attention, which is the whole area of you know, impact investment, which I think has the potential to unlock the innovation that both of you have talked about and to maximize um, you know, social outcomes. Uh, and there is a lot of talk about it, you know, whether it is in Davos or in the city or you know, the IDF, but actually there is also some stagnation in the debate because it's something we've been talking about for some time now. Um, there is, you know, there is more and more millennials entering financial um, firms who are driven by this passion of wanting to contribute to something bigger than just, you know, financial returns. Um, and yet, it gets stuck because we haven't worked out the metrics. We haven't worked out, you know, how we really develop these asset classes. How we really develop, you know, a, 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 the products that can lead investors um, to you know, invest with confidence in something that will generate social outcomes and it will be you know, comparable you know, for investors. Um, so how, you know, your suggestions as to how we really make sure that we have a bit of a quantum leap in the impact investment space. Right. Thank you. Just gentlemen here. Um, it's a somewhat similar question. It's also on invest, investing. I'm a project developer. I do a lot of work in East Africa. And if venture capitalists expect a one in 10 hit rate, why do the uncertain and adaptive challenges of green growth 
that inevitably require innovation and learning seem to require a cast iron business case. Does this disconnect stifle innovation and what should be done about it? Yeah, that's all about absorbing risk. Who absorbs risk exactly? Wonderful. We done? We good? Oh, can I, do you mind if I go to these guys? Because we, we, we had a question. It was a good question too. Um, who wants to go first? Ready? Okay, yeah, Michael, you go first. Shoot, point and shoot me. You got it. You got it. <laughs> Impact investing, uh, you know, lots of your direct experience about who absorbs risk um, and, and, you know, how does that get financed, etc. So can you do, they, they're nicely linked. They are very linked. Um, and because you use the word, you know, venture capital with respect to, you know, but, but really the business you're in is projects in, in East Africa. One thing is for sure that the venture capital model um, you know, is not fit for purpose to deliver all of this. And, you know, I think that was one of the learnings of, you saw in the sort of 2005, uh, 6, 7 period, Experience. California, you know, these guys, Sand Hills Road, venture capitalists are going to come and save the world. You know, John Dore, Kleiner Perkins, you know, stood up on stage, cried because his daughter mentioned climate change and he was going to fix it and that's what he's going to do. And, of course, what we learned was that they knew nothing about uh, energy, nothing about capital intensive businesses, nothing about uti how utilities buy uh, technology, nothing about structuring balance sheet, nothing about project development, your own field, Trevor. And, and so they were just sort of essentially just, you know, chased from the stage with the tail between their legs and large losses. There are things that technologists, you know, these kind of venture, the pure venture capital model can do around, you know, machine learning of how to optimize a wind farm. And there are pockets of things. Um, so then the question is, okay, so it's not them. Is it down to, you know, um, uh, impact investing? And um, I think all investing should be impact investing. You know, what we can't have um, and it is a system where, you know, you've got some good stuff that gets financed, but actually there's some bad stuff that still continues and goes on. And I talked about this in at the OECD Green Finance Forum. I said you've actually got success in climate action is when you're choking off the viability of the dirty stuff. Yeah. Let's be under no doubt. Yeah. And if you are choking off the viability of the dirty stuff, you don't need subsidized capital, you don't need sub-normal returns, yeah. you just, because you know, coal right now doesn't compete, investment in coal has halved, we're, we're absolutely winning on coal. And the next one will be you know, the, the dirtier end of oil, and then it will be olive oil, and it has to be petrochemicals, and it has to be you know, steel, it has to be all these things. And, and, and only that way will you get scalable, uh, um, you know, scalable amounts of money. I, I do think, that doesn't mean you can't do anything. That doesn't mean, oh, ah, libertarian, let the, you know, let the capital markets finance what they will, and it's all down to policy and energy. No, um, there are lots of distortions. I think I was, we started a process 10 years ago. Yeah. I called it um, uh, the financial system being institutionally fossilist. I don't know if you remember that. You know, and it had, there were lots of biases. If you can only invest in things that have a seven-year payback, you're going to do natural gas. You're not going to do solar. There's lots of biases. Um, and so those have to, and those are being just hammered down. Mike Bloomberg, Mark Carney, they're doing great work. There's now how many trillion under PRI? Oh, no, um, it's in CDP you know, that I... And now we see, now we see, um, you know, the, the big uh, Chinese investors, yeah. you know, you could say it's a kind of financial Kuznets curve that they've actually reached the point where they don't want to invest in bad stuff and are starting to pull out. And I think all I can say is that process is just, you know, it, it better, it just needs to accelerate and broaden so that 
you know, it's not just that we pull out of investing in coal in, you know, wherever, but, but everybody does. Yeah. Uh, and then the other... Well, there's a few people here know. looking at the Belt and Road Initiative in particular about what is being financed. Early yeah. signs are not yeah. good, Michael, to be honest. I agree. But and there are some signs, though, that the, that the Chinese are pulling out of coal. You know, the, so, yes, they're, I mean, they're yeah. far behind. Don't get me wrong. I'm not going to sit here and say how wonderful. But it's one of those areas yeah. where, where one has to pay attention. Yeah. Okay. okay. I was in an investment house uh, some months ago in a meeting the team and the young woman said to me, oh, hello, it's nice to meet you. I'm head of responsible investment. And I said, so who's head of irresponsible investment? <laughs> and the young man next to her said, uh, that's me. <laughs> so, and it's really interesting moment that these places have, oh, we've got a branch of responsible investment. Well, really be careful when you open that because it makes us just say, and everything else is. And I think it's a really good sign of a moment we're in that we're doing this nice progressive thing and then it calls into question everything else, and I completely agree with you. It just needs to shut down. There's no room for it. Yeah. I think we need to think about, you earlier on said, I don't care about the ownership of enterprise, and I do. Uh, and I'll just say why, because I think we need, I work with lots of companies. They say, oh, we really like the donut, and you know, how can we bring, how can we say that this is a product that brings us into the donut, whether we're making food or phones or clothes? And I say, okay, we can talk about the design of your products, but actually, I want to do some corporate psychotherapy with you. We want to talk about the design of yourself as an enterprise, and let's look inside. So what is the purpose of your enterprise? How is it governed? Its principles, networks, rules, its culture. How is it networked? And I really like the point you were making earlier. A company can be part of, oh, look, we're part of WCBS, you know, the World Business Council. And over here, we're part of some old commercial, you know. So get out of the old networks and only work with the new ones that are reinforcing the values you hold. But now let's, like psychotherapy, let's go down to the deep stuff. How are you owned? Yeah. Because whether a company is owned by founding entrepreneurs or family or private equity or venture capital or shareholders or employees, these different structures of ownership bring very different finance which has a very different quality. And is that finance, what I'm going to call extractive finance, that says venture capital, right? We're coming in, but we want to get out in 10 years' time at 10 times the volume. Okay, you'd be okay. that. Okay, all right, we want to get out, wait, okay. We, yeah. and, and what does that finance do to everything that you say we can or can't do? Or are you, and shareholders the same. Or are we backed by finance that says, we're investing in you, and I like the way Tim Jackson puts this, investment is a commitment. We're investing in you because we're committed to bringing about social environmental transformation that we know is needed with a fair financial return. Now, big emphasis on what is fair, but let's open that conversation because the finance is key. The design of finance so determines everything else the company can do and be. You mentioned Paul Pullman and Unilever the other, a moment ago. Paul Pullman transformed the purpose, Unilever Sustainable Living Plan, great. Transformed the governance of the company, no quarterly reports from day one. Great new metrics, transform the networks. Even when I worked at Oxfam, we did research with Unilever. They opened their supply chains up, good for them. So you can transform that stuff. But if you're still owned by the shareholders, then you're still prey to the market and guess what you get? A hostile takeover bid. And that's exactly what happened to them. And he had to rein back some of that and say, no, no, no. And so ownership matters because it determines the quality of finance, which means you can or not pull back into extractive or you can be generative. But the takeover bid was by Kraft, who are now in trouble, and he's, you know, he actually saw off the bid. It's a fantastic, it's a beautiful, just, but it's a beautiful, it's his actual, but that's what we have to, that's what you need to, and and what, just, what's yeah. Paul Pullman doing? I had a conversation with him afterwards. I said, how are you going to stop that happening in the future? 
making sure that 20% of the company is owned by its employees, all the way down to the blue-collar <laughs> yeah. workers. Yeah. To yeah. So it's a great transform the ownership sure. and you transform the purpose. Look, I, I founded and sort of new energy finance, and I can tell you every single because Everybody I because I knew that I had brought in external capa uh, capital, we were going to sell the business. That meant that I had to every single person who worked with us, even the interns who were with us early on, had options. So right. yeah, I, I mean I don't. I'm not going to sit and say, no, 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 you know, you're not matter, onto something. But, yeah. but what I would say is the debate around finance, I think, is it's one of these ones. I want to be respectful, but say that I, and, I, and I also want to say that I don't necessarily have I, I'm not necessarily enough of a macroeconomist to know the answers. But it's another one where stocks and flows get enormously confused because, you know, when you talk about somebody who is um, who owns, first of all, who owns who owns Unilever? These bad people who currently own Unilever. Well, guess what? We it's do. us, we do. right? It's we all, we it's, do. It's all our money. It, it's all um. It's all of our money. The other thing is that when you talk about oh, well, you know, you've got all this, you know, there's the, the lens of the inequality, which sort of lurks in the background, and, and and it's one of those things that I get allergic to, and we hasn't come up yet. But then you say, okay, you talk about the 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 people who own everything. Well, they can own two sorts of things. They can own a big wine estate, which is an exclusive thing that they can own, and it sort of sits there. Uh, or a bar of gold, or they can own financial assets. And if they're owning financial assets, what actually happens with those is that they are in the economy and they, are, they have to be put to some sort of productive use. In order and, to extract a return. Well, in order, and then we, you're right, we should have a discussion about how big that return is. Is it bigger than the demurrage? Is it bigger forever? Is this a game of monopoly or what was the other? Pandemic. Or pandemic, yeah. you know. And, and, um, and I, that's the right discussion. But this idea that people can sort of, you know, that, that, that wealth is somehow static, that it is a stock rather than actually having to go out and be part of a flow in order to be valued, at, in, in order to play its role as wealth, rather than just to, you know, be split up amongst children and to be prey to inflation and so on. It has to be actually out there um, funding stuff. And there's another discussion on that, which is the, qu the question of risk. Who said about risk? Yeah. And this who is where, you know, and who takes it? And this is, I think, where um, Mariana Matsukato has made, you know, huge mistakes because she says the state takes the risk when they invest in technologies. They don't. We know bureaucrats. They can invest all day in stupid stuff like Solyndra. Risk is when you suffer if something goes wrong. If you don't lose your job or your savings or your anything else, and you can simply somewhere else in the system, someone raises taxes to make up for your fault, you've not borne any risk. And I think we really need to get some more, I, I mean, I, I, like I say, I don't pretend to have answers, but I do know at least that I, I'm not hearing answers from the sort of, oh, we'll just all, you know, we'll all own shares in everything and somehow it will be solved, because I don't think it will. I think it comes down to the design of the money. My last, my last toy, please. Okay. You're, okay. Because this you're is the perfect. fundamental. This is your, your last. Okay. Your fine. sum up. Okay. All yours. Go for it. I Two think this is the heart of everything. Nature rots. Right. If I leave this apple sitting on a table, it will rot. And sorry for the spoiler, but we all die. Everything deteriorates. That is the dynamic of the world. However, we've created money, a design of money. And it's totally human created. It's designed to accumulate forever. You say the finance is investing. Yes, it is, but it's only investing because it's going to get a return, because it's going to get bigger. When a squirrel collects nuts in the autumn and buries them and comes back in February, it does not expect to find 5% more nuts in the pot. But we do. And this is about the design of money, and we're so used to it that it seems bizarre. But money 
You know, nature regenerates. So this will rot, but it'll come back as something else. So nature regenerates. It thrives. It balances in life. That is life. And money accumulates forever. And this, to me, is our ultimate conundrum. I don't know the answer either, but I think there's something deeply problematic about the design of money that in de demands to accumulate forever. And I'm worried that even if you reframe what growth means, people will hear it, that it's finance that can accumulate forever. And I think it's not compatible with conditions conducive to life. Michael, you happen to have the last what, word. What, what's what's great here is, I, I, now here's a whole sort of, well, certainly for me, it'll be a whole kind of reading list, I've no doubt. Because, you know, if wealth is continuing, if, we, if that complexity, better healthcare, better cultural stuff, better everything, if that can continue to grow and our prosperity can continue to grow, then I'm not sure why finance can't continue to grow since it's representation of that uh, as well. Let's charge and, everybody on the, at the door yeah. on the way out. You all have to pay for this. Because finance needs to grow as well as the wealth that we've created. Well, it doesn't. Hang on, but I might be extracting value through my brand or through all sorts of things. You know, I mean, I, I uh, intangibles. Yeah, intangibles, intangibles. Uh, or this might be part of my pro bono activities. You don't know, which I also value. Well, but, yeah. but the point is, I, we, I we don't. We need to get this I on don't, the bottom right, line. But my point is not that I. My point is I don't. I don't have. Uh, I can't. I can't disprove uh, what you said. But I also don't think you can prove it. Right? And I think that if you look at this system with its vast numbers of, sort of obvious problems that we can fix and that we do know how to fix, and we have a system that, that does that um, when it's correctly directed, does it pretty well. Did it with solar, did it with batteries, did it with all the, you know, did it with you know, overhead projectors and flat screen TVs and food for all of us and so on. So rather than suggest that there's something inherently wrong, given that we can't prove there is, what we do know is that we've got you know, enormous distortions through the political system, that we've got technologies that we need. We've got, there's so much we can do. And that was actually, you know, the, I, I think both of us want to give a very hopeful, I think both of us are optimistic people. And, you know, I think this is enormously exciting because everywhere I look, there's like, I hate to say it, but $10 bills lying on the floor <laughs> and, and also impact, an impact that you can have. And I think that I see so many ways that you can sort of do both. Uh, that I'm very excited and positive, and I think that's the main message. Everywhere I look, there are donuts lying on the floor. <laughs> I see them everywhere, nuts, bolts, rubber bands, everything I see them everywhere. everywhere. I'm not an optimist, actually, because I think there's a danger of optimism, which we say, don't worry, technology, ingenuity, I'm right? Optimism, like, no, I know you're not Paul saying Romer's, that. You know, the, the act of optimism. So, so I'm an activist, there's not a, an optimist. There's a fabulous, can I finish with just one yeah, thing on Paul Roman optimism, because it's fantastic. It's about the nature of optimism and that there are two sorts. Yeah, yeah. And the, the, the child who says, oh, well, I hope I get something really nice for Christmas, is a passive optimist. And the child that says, look, there's all this stuff lying around, bolts and bits and, and whatever, I'm going to build, I reckon I could build a really cool tree house. That's William Kamkwamba. Is in Malawi, okay, who built good. the, right? And who Paul Roman nicked his lines, yes. and I've nicked them from both of them. But I think that's what we have to be here. Brilliant. Yes. Okay, well, <laughs> that's it. Thank you very much, all of you, for attending. All of you online, marvellous to have you with us. Uh, the video and the audio will be up on our website, uh, so you can share it. Um, podcast, too, for those that, uh, that want to follow it afterwards. Uh, you can have a look at all ODI's most recent work, also on our website, odi.org. And finally, just please join me in saying a massive thank you to Kate and Michael for just a wonderful <laughs>
Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes. Thank you.